Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Our sermon text for our meditation this morning is our Old Testament lesson recorded for us in the book of Isaiah, the sixth chapter beginning at the first verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of the one who called, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, I am doomed, I am ruined, because I am a man with unclean lips, and I dwell among a people with unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, carrying a glowing coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with the coal and said, Look, this has touched your lips, so your guilt is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the Lord's voice saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Lord, these are your words, and therefore they are your truth. We ask that you'd increase our faith through them. Amen. Dear fellow redeemed, what word would you use to describe God? Would you maybe use words such as almighty, all-powerful, wise, eternal, everywhere present, gracious, merciful, loving, holy? There are many words that we can use to describe our God. As I was studying our text for this week, there was a certain word, though, that came to mind as I was considering all the details in our text about our God. That's the word wondrous. I latched on to that word because that word wondrous has the idea of something that's awesome or amazing, but also, at the same time, something that's completely incomprehensible. I thought that was a good description of what we see in our lesson for today, concerning God's essence, concerning his holiness, and concerning his grace. And so this morning, let us consider our wondrous triune God. Today is Trinity Sunday. It's a day in which we focus on our triune God. You might be surprised, though, that none of our lessons for today included that term, that word for God in them, the word triune or trinity. Was something overlooked? No. The word trinity or triune actually isn't found anywhere in the entire Bible. And yet, those are good terms for us to use concerning our God. They describe him being three persons in one divine essence or being. We consider what the scriptures say concerning God in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That passage tells us that there is only one God. That he is one. Yet Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 28 commands his followers to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say to only baptize in the name of the Father or only in the name of the Son or only in the name of the Holy Spirit, but all three are listed. He gives all three the same glory and the same honor 
pointing us to this truth that God is triune three in one. It's been said that perhaps God only revealed the trinity or triune uh, nature or concept of God in the New Testament. But we do see it in the Old Testament at, at various times. In fact, we see it even in our lesson for today. Note what the seraphim say as they call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of armies. Now, in the Hebrew language, to duplicate a word is to, quite often to show a comparison or maybe even a superlative to show that, that something is greater than something else. To maybe something, say something is holy, holy is to say that it's holier than something else or the holiest. And while it's common to duplicate two words to show that, to use them in a threefold way is very rare. It only occurs just less than a handful of times in all of Scripture. Which makes us wonder, is there something more going on in our lesson for today, more than calling him the most holy of all things? But is it really referring to his threefold nature, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet not three gods, but one God? And we also see this at the end of our lesson for today. Note God's questions that he says. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? It's kind of strange, isn't it? That God would say, us? After all, he began his first question, whom shall I send? That makes sense. God's one God, right? But then he goes on to say, who will go for us? Now some have wondered, is God speaking like a king, using like a royal we or a plural in that way? Some have wondered, is he including the seraphim with him, too? But nowhere in Scripture do we see God counseling with his creatures concerning his purposes. It seems clear that this is a reference to God being triune, three in one. So how do we understand this truth about our God? A number of years ago, I remember hearing a Wells pastor telling me about another friend of his when he was sitting in seminary one day and the professor got on the topic of the Trinity, and he asked the students, can any of you come forward and explain to me the Trinity, or explain to the class the Trinity? And one of the students raised his hand, and the teacher called on me and said, great, come, come forward, come explain the Trinity, because I can't. And the teacher sat down in the chair to listen. How true it is, right? Even the greatest among our theologians cannot fully fathom or explain that God is triune, that he is both three in one. With our human minds, we want to say it can't be both. He either has to be three, there either has to be three gods, or there has to be one God. It can't be both, three in one. And yet that's the truth that God tells us in his word. Leads us to note that God is wondrous, even concerning who he is. Wondrous, it's amazing, but also incomprehensible. The second truth we see in our lesson for today concerning God is really his holiness. When we think about that term holy, we probably often relate it to the term perfect or perfection. But really in the original language, it means to be set apart. We see that in our lesson for today, don't we? How God is placed upon this throne high above Isaiah and high above all things. He's exalted, wearing this robe with his train that fills the entire temple. And he's surrounded by these 
heavenly beings, these seraphim, and they're calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of armies. It's such a powerful word of praise that it shakes the foundations of the thresholds. It's interesting to note in the original language, in the original Hebrew, that word holy, in some ways, at least in my ear, it sounds almost like a bomb being dropped. It sounds like a heavy weight being, being dropped into an ocean or into a lake of water. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. It's what those seraphim said, shaking those foundations of the threshold. In fact, he's so set apart that even these beings that appear so holy and powerful, even of themselves, they need to cover their faces with their wings. They need to cover their feet with their wings as well. That's how set apart this God is. But he is also set apart holy, as in that he is perfect. We don't really fathom or understand God's perfection. How can we? We as human beings sometimes talk about things being perfect, maybe perfect pitch, or we say that was a perfect performance, or those are perfect children, or perfect spouse, or a perfect employee. But are they really? Is a performance ever truly, completely without error, completely flawless in every way. Those individuals who maybe listen to their parents most of the time, do they really do it all the time? Or that employee that follows the word of his employer, what is he like at home? What is he like when the boss isn't looking? That spouse as well. Now we say, come on, pastor, we're all human after all. Nobody's perfect. But God is. God is perfect in every way, every moment of eternity. God is perfect in his thoughts, words, and in his actions. And we can't really fathom that about God. Furthermore, God is perfect even in his judgments. Now we ourselves probably project our own feelings and thoughts on God quite often concerning his judgments. We want to think of God as being quite lenient. In our lesson for today, we think about Isaiah talking about having an unclean mouth or unclean lips. Perhaps that reminds us of those times when we have gossiped, those times we have lied, or those times when we have blasphemed or used God's name in vain. And we say to ourselves, well, I know I shouldn't do those things. I know they're unseemly. I, I know they're, they're wrong, but it's not murder or it's not adultery. Is it really that bad? It's good for us to remember that in the Old Testament, God gave a civil law to his people, to the nation of Israel. He commanded them if someone was to blaspheme, they were to be stoned to death. That's how serious God is about his law. He requires that we hold to it perfectly in every way. We think about what God says in James chapter 2. Whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point has become guilty of breaking all of it. And the soul who sins is the one who will die. Yes, we want to think that God is lenient when he says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or when he says, Without holiness no one will see the Lord. But he means what he says absolute perfection in thought, word, and deed. 
Being in the presence of God, Isaiah ultimately realized how separate he was from God, how set apart God was from him, how holy he was. He realized how unworthy he was to be in God's presence. And so he says, I am doomed, I am ruined, because I am a man with unclean lips, and I dwell among a people with unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Isaiah was no slouch. We don't hear of any big sin that Isaiah committed in his lifetime. Not like David, who committed adultery and murder. Not like Noah, who was found drunk in his tent. Not like Moses, who didn't listen to God's command. Or like Peter, who denied our Lord. Or like Judas, who betrayed him. From all human standards, Isaiah probably appeared pretty upright and holy to the rest of the world. But not to God. Before God, he saw his unworthiness. He saw his unholiness he knew his sin. That same prophet went on later to write in his book, All of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a filthy cloth. Even our good deeds, our righteous things we do, are like a dirty rag before the almighty and perfect, holy, triune God. Have you ever been at a formal party, maybe a a dinner or a wedding, something like that, and you're dressed up in a nice suit or a nice dress or blouse. And as you're eating, you accidentally spill something on your shirt. And you try to wipe it, but it only makes things worse. You realize you just got to leave it there, right? But it bothers you, doesn't it? Throughout the night, as you're talking to other people who are all dressed so nicely, you know the stain that's there, the evidence of your mistake. Think about Isaiah, how he felt in the presence of the perfect and holy God, how God saw his sin, his sinfulness that was like a stench in God's nostrils. And yet, what does God do? Something incredible, something amazing, something incomprehensible. He sends the seraph to go and to take a coal with tongs from the altar and to touch it against Isaiah's mouth. And he makes him clean. He covers his sin, forgives his, his guilt. And the picture for us is to think about that coal not simply as a fire, like a fire that purifies us, but to think about where that coal was taken from. It was taken from the altar of the Lord, that altar that would have been offering proper sacrifices to God. We're very familiar with altars, aren't we? In fact, in our own sanctuary, we use an altar as the focal piece up front, don't we? And why is it there? Is it simply because it's, it's a nice, heavy piece of furniture that kind of balances the room? Maybe do we have an altar because we need something to hold the candles on, or the cross, or the offering plates? Or, Of course, when we have communion, it's very convenient to place those things there as well. But it's not a table. It's an altar. And what was an altar? The altar was the place of sacrifice, wasn't it, in the Old Testament? The place upon which the carcasses of the animals would be laid. They'd be burned up, and the smoke offered to God. Offered for the sake of the sins of the people. That's the picture God would have us think of today in our lesson, is that coal is taken from the altar, the place of sacrifice, and it touches his lips. That altar reminds us of sacrifice in the Old Testament. 
What was the sacrifice that could possibly make us right with God, that could possibly restore our relationship with him, could make us clean and holy in his sight? It wasn't the blood of bulls and goats shed upon an altar. but It was the blood of the Son of God shed upon a cross, wasn't it? You see, this is the place of sacrifice in the Old Testament. This is the place of sacrifice in the New Testament. God tells us about that sacrifice in Hebrews as he describes the one who is sacrificed for us. This is certainly the kind of high priest we needed, one who is holy, innocent, pure, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices on a daily basis, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. In fact, he sacrificed for sins once and for all when he offered himself. We know who that is, don't we? God the Son. God himself, the holy and perfect God separated from us by his perfection. He is the one who is offered as our sacrifice, as payment for us on the cross. We might ask ourselves, who would ever do that? Who would ever give their perfect and holy Son for a reprobate, for a rebel, for one who has committed every crime that there could be? Justice would say that the good son deserves to be rewarded and the bad son deserves to be punished. But God does something incredible, something amazing. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's what he assures Isaiah in our lesson for today and that's what he assures us as well. Imagine that you are in Isaiah's shoes, being there in God's throne room in his holy temple. Think about how ashamed you would be of your sin, but also think of what comfort would be brought to you as that coal would touch your own lips as you would be reassured that that sin, that guilt, was taken away entirely. We see Isaiah himself was completely transformed by it. He's transformed from saying, woe is me, to say, here am I, send me. He's transformed by the amazing and incomprehensible grace of our triune God. There are many words that we can use to describe God. Wondrous is an excellent word that describes him as both amazing and incomprehensible. We think about how he is in his essence, in his holiness, and also in his grace. It's all praise, honor, and glory be to our wondrous triune God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above you, heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.